Yak. Welcome back to another quarantine podcast. Hope this podcast finds you well. We're continuing our study on the love of God out of the R.C. Sproul book, God's Love, Pick It Up, Excellent. And we're continuing dealing with the issue of how do we deal with the wrath of God or uh, what seems to be God's hatred towards um, people who have sinned against him, those he abhors, those who he pours out his wrath on with the love of God. And part one was last podcast. Part two is this podcast. And we'll get into more details about it as we continue to flesh this out in the weeks to come. Um, Here today, we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at the unconditional love of God. We're going to look at God's foreknowledge. And we're going to look at how um, the elect are gifts of God the Father to God the Son. Um, and we're going to look, begin, beginning with the unconditional love of God. What does it mean? So people use this to- this all the time, right? It's very kind of fashionable, especially in the American church, to be like, well, God loves everybody. And in a sense, that is true, right? When we approach people and we offer them the message of the gospel, we share with them the love of God that God has for his creatures, namely because we as created beings do not know who is elect and who is not. So Calvinists or Reformed people should be um, the most evangelical people um, ever, and and historically we are. Um, I think you can easily make that argument. Um, And so how do we deal with God's unconditional love. Is it unconditional? Well, to be unconditional, it must not have a condition in one meets to attain that love, right? So where do we find the idea of unconditional love of God in Scripture? Is it absolutely unconditional? Now, I would say no. Why? Because we tell people that they have to repent and have faith in order to be saved. And those are the conditions in which the love of God rests. You see, when we just say God loves absolutely everybody in the exact same way and does not require any conditions to receive that love, we fool them. If people hear that God will continue to love them and accept them no matter what they do or how they live, we might as well declare universalism as to declare an unconditional love of God without a clear and careful qualification to what that means. There's a difference. If you look at the evangelistic tactics sometime between the 18th and 19th century in modern evangelists, one at least gives pause and dedicates part of its evangelistic message to the wrath of God, while the other one seems to discount sin and ignore the wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards warned his people that they were um, repugnant to God in their sin and that they were rebellious subjects against their king. This was part of proclaiming the gospel of reconciliation. Think about it. There can be no talk, this is R.C., of reconciliation without first establishing that there is some prior alienation or estrangement. Parties who are not estranged do not need reconciliation. The biblical concept of reconciliation 
supposes a condition of estrangement between God and man. Now, this is where a lot of modern circles come up. They say, well, it's just our estrangement to God. How can it be God's estrangement to us? This is a common contemporary view that we are estranged from God, but he is not estranged from us. And that the enmity, so the feelings of God as enemy, is one-sided. But think about it. The cross flips this picture upside down. Sarsi. The cross occurred because God loves us. His love stands behind his plan of salvation. However, Christ was not sacrificed on the cross to placate us or to serve as a propitiation to us, the enmity. His sacrifice was not designed to satisfy our just, unjust enmity towards God, but to satisfy God's just wrath towards us. The Father was the object of the Son's act of propitiation. The effect of the cross was to remove the divine estrangement from us and not our estrangement from him. If we deny God's estrangement from us, the cross is reduced to a pathetic moral influence with no substitutionary satisfaction of God. Think about it. In Christ, the obstacle of estrangement is overcome. We are reconciled to God. But, and we're going to ask it here, does that reconciliation extend only to believers? And if you believe that it is reconciled to all people and somehow we must make a decision in our libertine free will to choose, well, then we have to deal with the text of Scripture. So we're going to look here at the four love of God. This kind of sits in Romans 8. Let me read this passage in Romans 8 to you. It's very famous. Probably many of you know it. And we know that all things work together for good, that those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose, love that verse, rest in that verse. I love it. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is one of the most comforting passages of Scripture in the midst of tragedy for the believer because God uses, and you could argue throughout the Old Testament, calamity to bring a people to himself. So the next verse then speaks, or this verse speaks of God's foreknowledge and his predestination, verses 29 and 30. This text is a favorite of those who advocate the prescient view of predestination. The inference drawn from this verse is that God predestines, or his predestination is based on his foreknowledge of future events. Again, the idea is that God looks down the corridor of time and sees in advance how people will respond to the offer of the gospel. Then he predestines to salvation those who will someday embrace the gospel. His election of them is based on their foreknown decision. And there's a serious problem with this view. The first we have already considered, namely that Paul explicitly teaches a few verses later that it is not in him who wills, Romans 9.16, and if the present view is correct, then it is precisely in him who wills. And here's the big difference when we look at this list. This is a possible inference, this link between foreknowledge and predestination. But it's not a necessary inference. This is why we need logic back in the schools so we can have good discussions about it. 
To treat it as a necessary inference is to fall in the trap of what we call a post hoc fallacy. Which This is good for you to know. A post hoc fallacy is when one thing follows another, but it does not prove that it's caused by another. Uh, this is what's used regularly, um, this example. Because a rooster crows and then the sun rises does not mean that if we kill the rooster, the sun will not rise. Whether one assumes the prescient view of the election or the reformed view, it is necessary for foreknowledge to precede predestination. We say that. But think about it. God could hardly predestine unknown people to salvation. Whomever he predestined, he must have known. Otherwise, he would not be predestining them at all. For God to have chosen Jacob from the foundation of the world, he would have to have known Jacob from the foundation of the world. Therefore, it is not at all surprising that Paul is teaching us about predestination and divine election and puts God's foreknowledge at the beginning of a chain. When we look at Romans 8, this is what's called the order salutis, or the order of salvation. And this order is not necessarily temporal, nor is it necessarily chronological. But we would argue that it's logical. This is what R.C. says. For example, when we speak of the relationship between faith and justification, we say that justification is by faith. Yay, Reform Reformation. Yay, Luther. Yay, Calvin. Meaning that faith is a necessary condition for justification. One must have faith in order to be justified. And in the sense, we say that faith comes before or precedes, logically, justification. But then we must ask, how long must ha we have faith before we are justified? The answer is clear. There's no time lapse between faith and justification. The moment we have true faith is the moment with its, that we have justification. In reality, faith and justification occur simultaneously. But then why do we speak of the order salutis in this way? Again, the answer is found in a logical priority. We understand that justification depends on faith and not faith on justification. This is kind of the golden chain of Romans 8 that we see Paul mention not only in foreknowledge and predestination, but also we see calling, justification, and glorification. So it's this whole list that we see. And the apostle expresses the links in the chain by saying that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he justified, and so on. The presumption is that virtually every commentator of this text is that the word whom, which is an important word, always refers to always refers to all of those in the class mentioned. Well, what's the class mentioned? That is, all whom God predestined are called. That's the class mentioned. And all whom God calls are justified. Again, the class mentioned. And all whom God justifies are glorified. And in this case, the text absolutely demolishes the prescient view of election. Think about it. The answer lies in relationship between calling and justification. What is the meaning of divine calling in the text? So what is the meaning of divine calling in the text? When we discuss this in theology, and you need to know this, if you can understand um, internet concepts and TikTok concepts and all the latter, you can understand this stuff, okay? We distinguish between what we call the outward call of God and the inward call of God. They happen many times simultaneously. The outward call is the preaching of the word, 
When you share your faith, that's an outward call of God. And the inward call of God refers to the call of God that the Holy Spirit speaks to our souls. Now, the question is, is this always effectual? When God calls you, will it have the effect of faith and justification? And if you hold to historic Augustinian theology, and I believe biblical theology, the grace of God's inward call is always effectual. That is, it accomplishes its desired effect. Look at the text of Romans 8, 28 through 30. And the sinner is brought to faith every time. All who receive the effectual inward call of God are justified. Since those who are carnal are also those who are justified. And the plain sense of the text that requires the inward calling to be an effectual calling. It's just a plain reading of Romans 8. If the text meant to teach the prescient view of election, it would have said that some whom God foreknew he predestines, and some whom he calls he justifies, and some who he justifies he glorifies. But the presumption in the text, looking at the Greek, is all. That's what it is. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for those who are in Christ? And this is where we're going to open our Bibles today. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and then John 17. That means that those who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a gift from God the Father to God the Son. This is verses 6, 39 through 40. I'm just going to read a lot of scripture right now. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He builds it further, um, or earlier, let me read 636-38 for you. But I said to you that you who have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Again, there's the all. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of the one who sends me. Sends me. Flip to John 17. Pause the podcast. Get there. Welcome back. John 17, Jesus has made a reference to this giving here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. He goes on to speak of the authority he received from the Father to grant life to certain people. Here, this is verses 6 through 12. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. So Jesus here is speaking to you. 
I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. That's rich to think of. You, in Christ, you glorify the Lord. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. R.C. says this in this prayer, it is clear that believers are the Father's gift to the Son, a gift that is not to be lost or destroyed. Jesus prayed that these gifts may be kept and not discarded. He thanked the Father that all have been kept except the Son of Perdition, who is elsewhere described as having been a devil, John 6.70, namely Judas, John 6.71. And this is where we see the concept of adoption. You are adopted as a child of God unconditionally before time began. He chose you not because you had anything to offer, but because he freely wanted to offer himself to you. But there would be enmity on that creation because they had disobeyed the Father. Their responsibility was to keep the law and they broke it. That's you and me too. And so he sent his son to redeem those that he had chosen out of the world for his glory and for his love. And because of it, we are adopted. We are adopted into this love of God. We can rest in that adoption as we have repented and believed the gospel. Now, I want to say this, and I want to reiterate this. I mentioned it earlier in the text. That means, that still means we share the gospel with everyone we come in contact with. We don't get to say, elect, non-elect, elect, non-elect, elect, non-elect. We don't get to say that. We should be praying, as the text says, even for our enemy to come to know God. For the Holy Spirit to work in the inward call of even those that we have disdain for. And if we do have disdain, we should also be pleading for the Lord to change our hearts and have the fruit of the Spirit towards those that we struggle with and to make us more like Christ. This is a big concept today. It's a longer podcast. I apologize for that. But it's something I want you to sit in and chew on. Um, I think this would be a great book for you to add to your library. You can continue to go back to it to better understand it. R.C. does an excellent job of breaking down these big concepts. Um, And he's a logician. Um, So anytime um, I see um, logic brought up in the text and pointing out logical fallacies, I get excited because uh, it helps me think more clearly. Um, Miss you guys. Praying for you. Peace.